Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That is our topic for the morning. One of my favorite movies is Groundhog Day. That has a lot to do with this beatitude, trust me. There's another 90s, 30-year-old movie reference for you, by the way. Uh, Groundhog Day is a film from the 90s starring Bill Murray, and uh, it gr- uh, should have been nominated for multiple Academy Awards, in my opinion. Groundhog Day is about this man named Phil Connors, who is a weatherman for a local weather station in central Pennsylvania, and they go to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, to see if the groundhog is going to show his head uh, and if winter is going to continue or not. And Phil Connors is, frankly, quite a jerk. And... Um, he ends up getting stuck in the same day as sort of this existential lesson for his life. And he has to, he learns over time, I guess, live the perfect day in order to literally move on with his life. You know, that's the theme on the surface. It's funny, uh, and I'm serious, in recent years, that film has been shown in like all these hipster indie movie festivals because underneath the surface, that movie really is uh, somewhat profound because what Bill Murray's character, Phil Connors, is doing is really exploring all the different ways, all the different philosophies of life that attempt to answer the question, how can the human heart be satisfied? So he goes through hedonism, living for pleasure, which is frankly, one of my favorite scenes. He goes through stoicism. He goes through nihilism. He experiences all these different ways of being, ways of living in the world. And eventually, spoiler alert, the movie's 30 years old, but spoiler alert, he has to, you know, basically live a day where he loves another person selflessly, which is for him something he had never done before in order to move forward. Now, I'll leave it to you as to whether or not the answer Groundhog Day provides is a right answer. But the point is that I think Groundhog Day is one of those pieces of cultural media that really are attempting to answer the question Jesus answers for us in this particular beatitude, and that's this. What is going to satisfy you? What is going to satisfy your your longings and your desires and your deepest wants. Jesus, as a master teacher, is very interested in helping us explore the answer to that question. The Beatitudes, as we've been seeing in the prior few weeks, are the opening of Jesus's most famous set of teachings, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. And so just by virtue of where they situate themselves in Matthew's gospel, they're, they're very important. And um, we've seen that the Beatitudes are at least two things. They're, they're first of all, 
case studies we've seen, especially the first few. They're case studies for the type of person that Jesus came to rescue, the type of person that is invited into his kingdom. And they're not the people we would expect. They're not the impressive religious people. They're the poor and the sad and the meek. But we also have seen that the Beatitudes, on top of being case studies, are their descriptions. They're descriptions of what life in Jesus' kingdom is supposed to be like. They're descriptions of the way, the way of Jesus. And as we've seen, and we see again here, Jesus says some really topsy-turvy things about his kingdom, about his way, about his rule for living. The Beatitudes are Jesus saying, this is what life in my kingdom is really all about. And he says some jolting things. Happy are the sad. Blessed are the meek and the poor. And again here, satisfied are the hungry. And quenched are the thirsty. What does Jesus mean? You know, you could make an argument that this is the central beatitude. It's in many ways what the first three have been leading up to. So how are we to understand it? I want to show you three things, okay? First, our longing. Second, our problem. Third, our satisfaction. There's your outline for you type A note takers who attempt to acquire your own righteousness by taking notes or who just want to remember the sermon. I love you taking notes, honestly. Uh, Part one then. Our longing, our longing. Jesus says here that those who hunger and thirst for something, for righteousness, we'll talk about that in a minute, will be filled or will be satisfied. That hunger and thirst language refers to a deep and a desperate hunger and thirst. That's what these words mean. And I think it's definitely metaphorical language. Jesus is using here the image of being hungry and being thirsty, desperately so, to teach us something about our own inner lives. Jesus is saying that we're blessed when we long. We're blessed when we desire deeply. And I I think that's worth thinking about for a minute. The premise of Jesus' teaching here is that all of us, every single one of you, as, long, as well as me, deeply long for something or someone or some things. Every single one of us, just by virtue of being human beings, we all have deep desires. Humans are intractable longers. We're desiring creatures. We cannot not want. We cannot not desire. And the scripture everywhere talks about longing in both a physical and spiritual, whole person sense. The the picture the scriptures paint is that this longing, this desiring is essential to our humanity. We are in so many ways led and driven by our desires and by our longings. Jesus recognizes this. And if you're going to understand what Jesus is after here as he calls us to follow him, you have to accept that first principle. To be human is to desire deeply. But, listen, I think the church has messed this up, among other things. The church has for many, many years, particularly in our stream of tradition in the church, 
in, in inherent, you know, just sort of implicitly and sometimes explicitly said that the way towards change and the way to experience um, deep renewal is through acquisition of information. In other words, change primarily happens through the prefrontal cortex, through the brain. And, and I think that that is somewhat true, but it misunderstand, it misunderstands what fundamentally drives us as humans. The, the Christian philosopher, Jamie Smith, has written a lot about this. And he makes the case that we're driven by our longings and our desires, which is, I think, the case Jesus is making here. And then he goes on to say that secular culture, and particularly Hollywood, understands this much better than the Christian church. Let me read you a quote from his book, Desiring the Kingdom. Smith writes this, quote, The marketing industry, which promises transcendence through media that connects to our heart and imagination, is operating with a better, more creational, more incarnational, more holistic anthropology than much of the church. Let me give you an example that I think typifies this idea. Do you remember those great Dos Equis commercials? The most interesting man in the world. If you watch sports, you're like, yes, I've seen a lot of those. I see Eric back there nodding. Thank you for the nod, Eric. Someone remembers those commercials. I'm not sure if they're on anymore, but they were, in my opinion, brilliant pieces of advertising. You can YouTube them later. The first one of these opens up with this man in a tuxedo on a life raft in the middle of the sea. And uh, he's handsome, but he's not too handsome, right? And he's probably in his mid-50s, and in the life raft with him are these five immaculately dressed, beautiful women. And, and then um, he begins, to, the, the, the scene changes, and it starts showing us all these different vignettes of this man's life, where he's doing all these really interesting things, like he lives on a permanent vacation, and a narrator begins to speak in the background, and here's what the narrator says. His reputation is expanding faster than the universe. He once had an awkward moment just to see how it felt. He's living vicariously through himself. And then you see him at a dinner table with a dark room and again, beautiful women around him just hanging on his every word. And he doesn't say drink Dos Equis beer, does he? He says, I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer Dos Equis. And you're like, Man, Dos Equis sounds pretty good right now. At least that's what I think. I think that commercial's brilliant. Why is it so brilliant? Because it's getting at what men age 25 to 45 long for. We want to be seen as interesting. We want to do really amazing things and, and have unique experiences. We want people to hang on our every word. What that commercial series is doing is getting at some of what most deeply drives the human heart. And you remember how every one of those commercials ends? Stay thirsty. Stay thirsty, my friends. Hollywood gets it brothers and sisters. Hollywood gets that what drives humans more than what we think is what we want. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, Surprise My Joy. He says, in a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing other than an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. I wonder if what Lewis says there, if what Jesus is saying here resonates with you at all. 
I, I think it should, if I could say that. It should because it's an integral part of our humanity to desire and to long. And Christian teaching recognizes this. It's a part of what it means to be made in God's image. We are desiring beings. This is not something to be denied. It's not something to be shunned. Rather, it's, it's to be fully expressed in our lives. But the problem, the problem is that we seek to satisfy our hunger and our thirst, our longings, our desires in really terrible ways. Let's look at that secondly. We've seen our logging. Now we see our problem. Desiring itself is not the problem. In fact, in many ways, the entire story of this world is the story of men and women seeking to satisfy their hunger and their thirst in anything other than God and his righteousness. Many Christians recognize that our longings and desires can lead us into folly and sin and all manner of brokenness. And often the solution that Christians postulate is simply to cease desiring these things, to stop. We're told to stop hungering, to stop thirsting, to stop wanting these things so badly. But notice that's not what Jesus says here. He says the solution to the problem is not to stop hungering and thirsting. That's impossible because we're all humans. The solution to the problem, rather, is to hunger and thirst for the appropriate person and the appropriate thing. Our solution in Christian circles is often actually more like Buddhism than it is like Christianity. Buddhism historically says that the way to move forward in life is to understand that all of our desire is to some degree an illusion. G.K. Chesterton, 20th century Catholic Christian, in his great book, The Everlasting Man, is comparing Buddhism with Christianity. And at one point, Chesterton, I think very helpfully, writes this. You can read along with me. You read quietly, by the way. I'll read out loud. Here's what Chesterton wrote. Buddha proposed a way of escaping from all this recurrent sorrow. And that was simply by getting rid of the delusion that is called desire. It was emphatically not that we should get what we want better by restraining our impatience for it, or that we should get it in a better way or in a better world. For Buddha, it was emphatically that we should leave off wanting it. The Buddhists call this beatitude. Certainly to me, says Chesterton, it is not indistinguishable from despair. The solutions that we're often told, maybe in our own Christian formation, to just stop desiring don't work. And the reason is that the main problem is not in our desiring. The main problem we experience in life is not that we want things. It's not that we hunger and we thirst. The main problem is that our hungers and our thirsts are malformed and misinformed so that what we most want can never actually fill or satisfy us. It can never actually give us what we need. The problem fundamentally, as Jesus says elsewhere, is not out there. The problem is rather inside. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The problem is that we desire things and people that can never really satisfy us. If you have teenagers, you can understand this, I think, in many ways. One of the ways that teenagers show this is when they get hungry in these long summer days and, and they go for a snack in the pantry, which happens like 400 times a day, right? And uh, instead of getting something, at least in my experience, that's going to satisfy their hunger, they get 
something that's really not going to do much for them at all. They eat, you know, junk food or, or chips, etc., etc., etc. And of course, it's not wrong for them to be hungry. It's wrong for them to look for satisfaction in something that's never going to provide it. It's an example of the way so many of us are. Think about it in your life. Ask yourself, what is it you long for? What do you desire? What is it that's driving you? What do you go to in order to satisfy these longings? There's any number of answers to that, aren't there? But for some of us, just as a few examples, we we might strive for success or, or recognition or power to satisfy the longings we have. I admit that's one of mine. I want to be seen by you as successful. I want you to think I'm an amazing preacher and an amazing pastor. I want to be respected and envied by other people in my field. I want success. But that desire is not going to satisfy me. And it's not going to satisfy you. Why? Because what it really does is make me and all of us who go after it radically insecure and emotionally fragile. It causes us to commoditize people rather than see them as image bearers. It makes us anxious and frenzied. It it tends to reduce our entire humanity to our day jobs. And you know that you're longing for success and that it's never going to pay off for you if you find yourself envious of the positions or gifts of others. If you can't handle constructive criticism, even if it's not done that well, to be honest. If you're ridiculously over-competitive, which I've been known to be once or twice. Many of us desire maybe not success, but pleasure. In our current culture, we see this obviously in the, the sexualization of virtually everything. But that desire won't satisfy us either. Not even sexual desire, which is a good thing made by God. Why not? Well, because it confuses the product of love and commitment with the cause of love and commitment. It won't satisfy because we're more than merely physical. You know that you're longing for pleasure, hoping it's going to fill the hole in your hearts if you can't exercise self-control with any restraint at all in your life. If you believe that a great sexual experience or any kind of experience is the answer for you, if you're enticed in your marriage to fantasies about others. Many of us desire and long for the perfect relationship for some other human to fill the God-shaped hole that's in all of our hearts. We think that if we're single and we meet that special someone who is our perfect match, us married people are like, don't be too cynical, married people. But if you think you're going to meet someone who's your perfect match and you're going to be content, you might be seeking to have your desires satisfied by a relationship that's never really going to do it. And if we're married, we think that if our spouse would just change in the ways we think they should change, we would be good to go. We think that finding a soulmate is is going to fix our longings for intimacy and tender affection with other people, but that desire can't ultimately satisfy. Why? Because when you expect another human to provide you with lasting enjoyment and satisfaction that meets all of your needs, you're asking that person to do the impossible. You're not loving that person any longer. 
You're projecting your own unmet longings onto them. No person can be your perfect match. No person can make all of your dreams come true. No human can fill the God-sized hole in all of your hearts. Every other person in the world is at least as messy as you are. Why would we think that they can meet our every need? You know, that's what you long for. If you're single and you can't find a spouse because no one seems to, <clears throat> to measure up to your expectations. You know, that was, that's what you long for. If, if you're married and you continually and constantly assume that the big problems in your marriage are with your spouse and not with you. You know, that's what you long for when you're shocked at the selfishness of your husband or your wife, but oblivious to how your ridiculous and unattainable expectations of a human relationship might also be selfish. There's therapists in our congregation that I'm happy to point you to, to go further in some of these areas. But here's the point. Here's what Jesus is saying. And here's what we must grasp by faith if we're going to follow Jesus. Our deepest need is God. Our deepest need is God himself. That's why God made us. That's why St. Augustine has famously written, Thou made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. That's also what C.S. Lewis was after when he famously wrote in Mere Christianity, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Our problem is not our desires. Our problem is that we seek to meet them in the wrong places and in the wrong people. So what's the solution? Let's look at that lastly. What's our satisfaction? Matthew 5, Jesus says that we are blessed when we long, when we hunger and thirst, but when we hunger and thirst for the right thing, for righteousness, he says. So being a part of Jesus's kingdom means longing, hungering and thirsting for God and for his righteousness. Two quick questions on this point and then we'll wrap up, okay? First, what does righteousness mean? Jesus uses that exact word four other times in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 10, chapter 5, verse 20 of chapter 5, chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 33. And, and, and the word really is a summary, I think, of the other things we've seen so far in the Beatitudes. Righteousness is being meek. It's being poor in spirit. It's being pure in heart. It's being a peacemaker. To summarize, righteousness is, is living as if God's kingdom is what drives and orders your entire existence. Righteousness is orienting our wants and our hunger and our thirst around God. Righteousness is a characteristic of God, you see. It's a characteristic, an attribute of God fundamentally. And so to hunger and thirst for righteousness is nothing more and nothing less than to hunger and thirst for God himself. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to know that we do not possess that which can satisfy us. Only God does. We're blessed, Jesus says, when we hunger and thirst for God and for his righteousness because God is the only person in the universe that really can meet our deepest needs and our most, unfelt, our most felt wants. That's why David, in the, some of the greatest of Psalms, one example, Psalm 63, can say things like this about God. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you. 
My body thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. That kind of life and relationship with God is truly available for every single one of you this morning. So how? How does God satisfy our longing? How does God and God's righteousness really meet us in our deepest heartfelt places? Here's how. He gives us himself. Interestingly enough, in John's gospel, Jesus has an encounter with the woman who has, as the old song says, looked for love in all the wrong places. He meets her at the well. It's in John chapter 4. And after beginning a discussion with her by telling her that he was thirsty and, and wants something to drink, this woman gives him some water. And Jesus, in John chapter 4, said to this Samaritan woman, Everyone who drinks of this water that you've just pulled out of the well for me will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus can give a water that will never make us thirsty again. A little later, John 6, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 and, and there's plenty of food left over. And as his disciples are struggling to figure out what this miracle means, Jesus tells them, I am the what? The bread. I'm the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will not hunger. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All who believe in Jesus will never hunger and never thirst. In Jesus, we see here, God gives us all that we need. He satisfies all of our longings. He quenches all of our thirst. He meets our every need. Jesus and connecting with him in faith is the only thing we can bank on to experience the satisfaction and the fulfillment of longing that we were all made for. Now, listen, I get that some of you really in the depths of your heart do not believe me. You really, you might think I'm in church. Amen, pastor. Sounds good. But you don't really believe that Jesus can like in a whole person, physical, spiritual, emotional way, satisfy you like that. I just invite you this week, brother, sister, friend, to try his promise out to ask him through knowing him and being found in him to satisfy you, to ask him to make good on his promise that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. I mean, after all, the prophet Isaiah in prophesying Jesus's coming and Jesus's kingdom calls us to come to him. Listen to what Isaiah says. Come Everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast Sure love for David. Blessed are those 
who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Let's pray.